Welcome to the All People Podcast, where we talk all people all the time. I'm your host, Elisa Southall. My goal is to improve Canada and employee experiences as well as company cultures throughout U.S. employers. We do this by leading with empathy, diversity, inclusion, equality, teamwork, and transparency. Come on this journey with me. Welcome back to an episode of All People Podcast. As always, I am your host, Elisa Southall. And here at All People Podcast, we talk all people all the time. I'm excited to talk to you this week's guest, um, Felicia Ward. Felicia uh, does marketing, and so she owns her own marketing company. Um, Say hello, Felicia. Hello, Alyssa. It's so good to be with you today. I'm excited. It's great great to have you here as well. Um, So tell us a little bit more about you know, what you like to do, what type of marketing you're passionate about and why you chose to start your own business. Sure. So I love B2C marketing communications. So I started out in advertising and then went into PR and then got into marketing communications, kind of the, uh, the nexus of everything and loved what my favorite part of marketing is, is human behavior. So I was the kid that loved to go to the mall and shop with my parents for a little bit and then sit on the bench and observe the bags that people had, how people talked about what they were shopping for, the excitement, the words that said, oh, you know, going out of sale, 50% off, buy one, get one free, the hooks that I listened to. So when later on, it would serve me well when I worked at advertising, I knew how to work copy. I knew what interests people. And I always tell people that marketing is the difference between what people say that they do and what they actually do. And the key is to find out what people are actually doing. For instance, people go to fast food, but they say they're trying to lose weight. They order and then what did they finish? They order a Diet Coke. That's human being. That's marketing. It's not that, you know, I'm going to Starbucks and I'm doing this and doing that. The person that goes to Starbucks that keeps their coffee mug, the person that goes to Nordstrom's and keeps the bag that says Nordstrom's, they buy a Gucci bag or Louis Vuitton bag and they keep the, the box and the bag for months. It's all marketing psychology and behavior of humans and how external validation plays a part, how people feel about themselves and the introspective work that goes on that we're all works in progress. So I've always loved that in marketing. Um, I am a person who has survived four job layoffs. I can tell you what happened in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, when Enron hit, that really impacted the industry that I was in when that was happening to people and people were losing good jobs. And I remember thinking, I'm only going to be in a certain type of marketing. And I tell to this day, anybody that mentors with me, younger people, never, you're never, it's going to be a one trick pony. Always make sure that you know more than just your one industry. If you're going to be a singer, be a songwriter, Okay. Also learn how to play instruments. Also learn how to dance. In other words, what other industry you're in, learn the surrounding industry. That that paid off for me in spades. I actually am very thankful. And I also learned to look for the signs when I don't care how great the corporation is, there are signs about not paying contractors on time to see how people are treated and what small bills are not being paid that you might want to start looking for another job. And I would get to another corporation and it, some that were very big 
and work on major projects and be there. And guess what? We're, we're mergers and acquisitions, downsizing. I could tell you all the different words and I could tell you what was happening during those times. And I would have to reinvent myself. I would have to get new certifications and learn a, a, a nexus to what I already was learning and start again and be interviewed by 20 some year olds who were looking at me like I was ancient when this started happening to me, like, you know, my thirties and forties, it's like, what's going on. So I tell people that you had to have that sense of resiliency. You have to be driven. And I, you know, there's so many times, um, you know, that like shout out to Deb Curtis, I wanted to give up and I'm like, you know what, I'm good at what I do. I love what I do. And all I had to do was work these jobs in the valleys where I would be working at a retail store, ringing people up, wrapping people's gifts, doing market research surveys, saying to myself, I can, and I will overcome this and I will get that next job and I would get it. But it would bode me well because I always look at what's front facing. The people who are front facing are the people who have the most information, the customer service, client services. And I end up becoming VP of client services that it's all about the customer to be obsessed about client experience, to be obsessed about asking the employees who are frontline what people like, what they don't like, what the feedback that you're getting. And I think what I consider to be, that's where the best market research is. So you have your analytics, you have your data, you have surveys and reports, but get down there and find out and talk to people. That's the most important part. It's the behavior to see the trends of what's happening for what's going on. For instance, I noticed right away at Sam's clubs and Costco's that the weeks that I would go shopping, I go the non-weeks when people shop, that I start noticing more and people were coming. I'm like, what's going on? And people had what they called the white carts, no food, water, toilet paper, uh, paper towels, tissues. The people that worked there, they grabbed the carts, they call them the white cart people. And I'm like, what's that about? And they were like, oh, the people that did their main shopping last week, Food prices are so high, they can't afford to buy the, those things during their normal shopping trip. They're coming back the next week with change because it comes to somewhere about 80 to $90. That is a trend, just like everybody knew the jokes and the memes when eggs went all the way to like nine, 10, $11 for eggs. It is indicative of what's happening in society and what the ripple effect is to consumers. So that's kind of how I've loved consumer marketing, I, but I also do B2B. And the reason I'm passionate about the B2B is impacting leadership. Servant and executive leadership is who I serve. And I kind of help them build and amplify their brand authority and kind of generate strategic visibility because it's really important to have an impact on leadership because even if they're going to be there a short time or a long time, when once they learn the impact and the power that they have and the lives that they are impacting and affecting, it stays with them. And then when they leave and they become an adjunct professor, they go on to have their own consulting firm, they start a nonprofit, it stays with them that they realize that, hey, these are just not a number. They're not a number. They're not just people, the number of people on the cut list, <laughs> okay, that they're, uh, they feel 
um, impacted by it. And when you change the mindset of a leader, it, it helps everyone's generation. All future generations are impacted and the people that are working there, they feel the effect. So that's where the power is. And I wanted to be close to the nexus of power. And I've worked and counseled lots of CEOs during crisis management situation. So I'm a little bit different than other people that are trying to do executive coaching or something is that I don't, I don't have anybody to cow down to. So I was not an employee who reported up to the CEOs. I was worked in crisis management as a specialty. So I was brought in when there was a serious crisis, a shooting, a downsizing, um, a faux pas that had happened that had ripple effect on their growth. So I come in and I'm like, nice to meet you. This is what we need to do. And they're listening. So I had their ear. And when you counsel people during a crisis, they don't question your credibility, your authority, if it's negative and they don't want to take the hit, I will take the hit and I will come out and be the spokesperson. That is a different level of conversation because we don't have time to get to know each other. <laughs> I don't know what you like. I don't know what you don't like. I am not the person that says, well, why don't we try? Perhaps maybe I've heard, I'm like, they're killing us in the market. <laughs> okay. We need to do this interview and we need to do it in the next 24 hours. If we don't have a reply, we're dead in the water. Oh, and this is the, this is what I get or I don't want to do it. It's either yes, or there's no, there's no in between. They're not talking to a group of people because they're making the decisive decision and just how they made that decisive decision that now when I'm talking about other subjects that are not crisis written, I'm able to kind of get in there and say the exact same thing without telling them the BS that they're used to hearing. And when it's a consultant coming in, I have no dog in this fight. I'm, I'm not politically aligned with anyone in the company. I'm not going to get this big promotion. I'm an outside consultant. So I feel very free and I get to talk to people like you. I get to talk to entrepreneurs and I'm very specific saying I'm looking for people that are servant and executive leadership. When you put servant before executive leadership, that could be an entrepreneur. It could be somebody that's an emergency, emerging executive. It could be someone who is a leader who's thinking about changing how they lead, or they're thinking about their next career move of what they're going to do next. So that's a little bit about how I got into it. So Yeah. And honestly, I mean, everything you're saying is, is so fantastic. And I have to tell you, um, and we'll, we'll explore this a little bit more, but I just want to share with the listeners, everybody out there that knows Chase and you've heard his episode, you're going to hear Jay Grooms' episode. Um, Felicia and I met because we're both part of Chasen's HR for You um, community. We're both partners in that group. And we were on a, uh, you know, living wage employment uh, live together. And, you know, part of what, when I was chatting with you, you know, you've taught me some things as well that I've shared with, with the public. Um, and so you also have a people first mindset because that's what you have to do in order to be part of Jason. Yes. But one of the things that you shared with me that I thought was really fantastic and, and really made me rethink of how I can educate my clients was you talked about how, I think it was in Philadelphia, that there was this McDonald's that was paying people in gift cards because those individuals didn't know how to open bank accounts. Mm -hmm. And I tell people that all the time, everywhere I go. And you shared that with me and, and it, impacts me and resonates with me because I'm like, why would those, why would that employer not just go and teach them 
how to build a bank account, how to open a bank account, what the necessary steps were, rather than paying them in gift cards. How do you pay your mortgage in a gift card or your apartment rent or your car payment? Mm-hmm. Right? I just, it, for me, it was just like baffling that like they could have just taken one extra step. And one extra help step. Those people. That's what it is. It's that usually what happens is that probably the CEO of the company probably wasn't aware of that. And, you know, so some of them are getting paid in a visa visa card. It's a prepaid visa card. And in some places, they're paying people in gift cards. And there's different behaviors that go on. And what you find, what I found is that when I worked, um, especially in the school district, that you find out that people, for the most part, when they leave their job, a lot of companies aren't good at doing exit interviews, but studies show the number one reason people leave the job leave the job is not because of the job. They're not leaving the company. They're not leaving the the duty that they had to perform. They're leaving their boss. They've had a bit toxic boss, you know, uh, and because of that, they leave. And then typically, when they do studies, it's not within three years the boss that you left usually ends up leaving as well. And then they find out post-mortem how many other people left because of that boss, how many people had complaints about their boss. So I count, I actually counsel employees that they know that I worked higher up and I've you know been in the boardroom. I've worked with different executives. And I said before, there were people that were deemed to be untouchable, but every sense the emergence and the forefront of compliance. I don't care what type of boss you have. I don't care how, what level they are, pull out your cell phone. And the next time that they go back crazy, videotape it, um, you record it. Um, that's not, may not be a miss an admissible in court, but you know what it is in the court of opinion, they are done. And as a person who answers the phone for media relations, when you have a reporter says, yeah, we've got a video here <laughs> of a person doing X, Y, and Z, as a person that worked in crisis and media relations, you cannot spin a video of people going nuts. Um, that is, what I'm going to end up saying is that it's an un- unfortunate yet isolated incident. And that person is no longer working for our company because they're no longer in alignment with our core values. And I'm going to get a email of the bio of the new person within the hour. That's what happens. So everybody can get got because of compliance. So I say amen to compliance that you don't no longer have to deal with that situation. So if your boss does not handle the situation properly and their boss and their boss, or there's a culture of of, uh, bad activities happening, make sure you document every day, the date, the time of incidents that happen and make sure if you can to record, you know, certain when people at the actual, just, just, you know, 10 seconds of people telling people what they can and can't do. And when I I learned at school districts, what happens is at companies, the larger the corporation, the larger, whether it's profit, nonprofit or government, people have a tendency to run what's called fightdoms. And in your fightdom, you might tell people they cannot go to lunch. They can only go to the bathroom once a day. You ha- you can't leave here before seven o'clock at night. And there are employees that are desperate to keep their jobs because they have families who will comply with that. Meanwhile, in the same company, you know, 
10, 20 miles away is someone who's like, I have a great employer. We have a great relationship. They're open to taking feedback. And then you hear of a multi-million dollar lawsuit being filed by one person who's talking about how crappy your company is. And you're shocked. And it happens quite often because managers are not checked. When a company is productive or that division is productive, no one is checking to make sure that they are in compliance. And when you find out that someone is doing something completely off the range, it's not indicative of what's happening with the company. It is not the company's policy. It is someone who has created a fiefdom. The number one reason people don't want to return to work besides the saving of money is toxic work environments, the sexual harassment, sexual, they just had a report came out in December that 12 to 13% of women who work in PR have attempted sexual assault has been made on them. That is unbelievable. So that's the type of how bad people are looking to maintain their jobs. And you need, we live in a world where because of technology and social media, things are Battles are won in public perception. What the Me Too movement did and what other movements have done has moved the needle forward because you, what you're doing is you're putting a camera up and a, well, I don't say a camera, you're putting a mirror up to our society. And what are we saying about ourselves? What are you saying about this company? And people don't like it when you put a mirror up to someone and says, is this what we're doing? You know, and, and that makes it forces stockholders, stakeholders, employees, all the stakeholders that your leadership must report up to, they go, we must respond. Right. So things that people did not want to respond to, they're forced to respond to. And that's something, a culture that could have gone on for decades. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you make that point. I mean, I, I've worked in HR and corporations before I started my own business. And um, there was times that I had to fight tooth and nail because there was a manager that I knew was a toxic bully. And mm -hmm. I had the employees removed from being his direct reports because I had had so many complaints. The right. new manager came and, and that person was chirping in the HR manager's ear about how they wanted direct reports. And I was like, check the file. They do not get direct reports for a reason. And I, they were like, well, he wants them back. He was a senior leader. He wants them back. He wants them back. And I was like, as long as I work here, he will never have an employee working under him. And as soon as I left, they moved people under him. And I was like, but it's in his file. Like we are creating toxic environments just by the flick of a, a switch, a flick of a button. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to your point, right. I always tell people, I, I tell companies, I coach, I tell managers, you know, Anything that you do and say is a reflection of the organization and vice versa, right? And it's going to go on social media, like in a second. And so you don't, you know, if somebody has a good candidate experience or an employee experience with you, they're going to post that on social media. If they have a bad one, they're going to post it on social media. So you better, you better damn well hope it's good, right? Yeah. Um, but the other thing I've even said and going to your point is like, you know, with the remote work phase that we're in right now, right? I, and I credit sort of a little bit of my, my millennial generation for pushing this dial on like, we knew everybody could work remotely. We've been shouting this from the rooftop for a while and companies kept saying, can't be done, can't be done, can't be done. Well, when it comes down to profits and, and because we had COVID, right? They did right. it. They and did now, it. That now us employers are all saying, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. 
right? It doesn't work like that. And so my saying is, is like, all right, we're on the train. The train is moving forward. If you don't like the direction we're going, stand on the sides because the train is moving. The train is going. And that's, you know, (laughs) and and employers are not used to showing their hand, like you mentioned. And Mm -hmm. so now that the employers have shown their hand, we're like, we call BS, right? Yes. Everybody. (laughs) collectively (laughs) everyone collectively has caught because you forget people forget if it was only a three-month period of time of COVID or six months but we're like what is it five quarters now so you have five quarters of productivity five quarters of the economy continuing lights aren't out and at the end of the day when they talk about productivity is down. It's not down. It's up. People are actually working more hours. And I always say all these fortune 500 companies make a list of all the clients that you lost because of remote work. Tell me the dollar value, qualify and quantify the loss that you're talking. You're missing the micromanagement. That's what you're missing. You're missing not knowing that a lot of these people are working not one job, but two jobs effectively at the same time as yours. And you're mad about it because you want all the attention to be made on you. You're mad because you're with your tax abatements, corporations are being threatened. Who are they being threatened by? The, at the end of the day, the developer wants you to go back to work, not the employer. The, the developers get, they, the average developer, and I worked for a major development, like the top three in the country, um, developers um, actually produce 60% of the revenue for downtown. The revenue is derived from real estate, real estate taxes, real estate income and revenue. So you would think because people, most people that have gone back to work, 25% of people are in that office. As long as they're paying 100% of the rent, why does the developer care? The developer cares because every tenant that's in that developer building has asked for rent relief because there's no traffic in the building. The, you know, the tenants are looking for rent relief. They're losing a whole lot of money on the parking garages because that all that revenue is not coming in. The vending machines, they're losing revenue, you know. So that's who is picking up the phone, calling the mayor, calling the governor, calling the White House. And then the president says, it's time to go back to work, even though the Gallup poll had showed they had surveyed 70 million Americans and 60 million Americans said they never wanted to return back to work. What part of that they, they, they don't understand? And this whole thing of coming back to work so we can have collaboration and culture and mentorship. Let me knock those out the part. So first, it's we're supposed to come back for collaboration. Well, what are all these Zoom calls for? What are the surveys for? What are the dashboards for? We are collaborating. And they're like, well, they're not impromptu. It's called pick up the phone and call somebody and say, I have a great idea. There's no difference between Zoom than if we just did a phone call, except for now we have another sensory aspect of it is that we have video proof that I am working. But if I was on the phone, you would have proof that I was on the phone. Well, you know, come on, let's be honest. And the whole thing about the mentorship. Okay, younger people are saying that they want the mentorship, but when they have senior managers come in to mentor them, a lot of times they don't show up. So, or they say, hey, you know, I need more of the mentorship. So they're saying, you know what, we need to have a collaboration of, I can't make it, let's have videos so that they can have a a library of videos. Let's have um, some 
in-person things so that they can shadow an actual mentor and they're looking for classrooms so they can talk to other mentors so they can create a community and have an online community. So that way you're doing a hybrid approach of in-person and online so that they have that. So that addresses that whole situation. And how about this? Bring back professional training development and professional, remember they used to have training and learning development. Now they outsource it. They outsource professional development. And I'm one of those people that gets outsourced too. But back in the day, you remember HR used to be a much bigger department. Now everything, payroll's outsourced, everything is outsourced. But before HR people used to go to a conference and then they would also get the trainer trainer certification when they learned something new and come back and every division had professional development quarterly. So when they do these gaps of what we don't know and what people, you know, they're missing in their company, it's their own fault because they're not funding the very thing that people need, which is ongoing professional development training. Every quarter, people should be learning something new. And if you had those types of programs, when people got onboarded, they could put them in a training and development program and have a team of people that focused on that as opposed to just pulling you know, random employees. It's your turn to babysit the, <laughs> the new ones. It's your turn to babysit the new That's what it feels like. It feels like it's forced babysitting. And that's not what people want. People want to be able to shadow people learn from people, and they also want to be in a classroom setting, and they want to be able to ask questions, provide that. And instead, it's all about, let's go back to work. That's a farce. They're forcing the hand, the government is forcing the hand of the employer and saying, if you don't make your people come back to work, then you're going to lose your space. Because that office suite that you have that's on the top floor, we're looking to give that to someone else. So you need to let us know when you renew your lease, are you staying or you're going? Who are you running this lease to? <laughs> Who's those mystery companies? They're full of it. And if you don't give the, the developer what they want, what are they going to do? Pick up and move? So you're finding that there's a boom in real estate in the suburbs because secretly the employers are looking for work share offices based on the zip codes of where people actually work. Because like 75% of people that are coming downtown don't live downtown. That's why they have these hour and a half commutes and an hour and a half you know, going back home. So if you have office shared suites, you can have 20 or so people be able to go to a variety of different offices that don't have enough space. You want to have the in-person collaboration. You're able to do so. And they're going to end up deleasing these mammoth spaces. And I, can I also add in, I know for a fact, government, you can look it up, government, off, government and federal government offered money and tax abatements to developers to do a change of use for their existing spaces. For instance, um, people that have mainframes that want to be able to rent inside of space, turning a place into a senior citizen 55 plus community, turning it into a public library, uh, movie theaters, museums, just a couple floors, they said absolutely not. So they're losing money when they could have gotten grant money, they could have gotten federal money. They're holding on out of greed because they wanna say we're on Fifth Avenue, we charge Fifth Avenue rents, and if we ever give up that rent, it's not gonna be what it was. And who's impacted? The employees and the employers. And if all those people, they say when they make them come back to work, they're mad, they don't wanna collaborate now. 
They're not providing feedback. And when five o'clock comes, they leave like roaches. They, they get out of there as soon as possible because they don't want to be in that space. And because they're in that space, they're looking at everything saying, hey, let's know this is what's going on. It makes no sense. And to everyone else that's in the programs and in these buildings, they're like, I've been working fine just the way I was. Why can't we continue? They don't really have a good answer because the real answer is it's greed for the developers, for the buildings that they're in, that your employers don't own. Think of it like shared media. When you're on social media, like what you talked about, you don't own those platforms. You have to have your own. You have to have your own website. You have to have your newsletter. You have to practice pesos, paid, earned, shared, owned, right? So when you talk about the shared media, I love that you brought that up. Everyone knows that if you call the 800 number to complain about a company, or if you went there and stood in line and said you want to be a manager, good luck with that, or you want to fill out a form, the fastest way to get a response from any company is because of what? Social services. You go on social media and they make a complaint when they're posting and their narrative you say this company sucks the social media manager is not going to get back to you social customer service is going to open up a file and contact you within the next 24 to 48 hours find out exactly what happened document what happened and decide whether or not they need to escalate that up so everyone nowadays knows just what you said People go, you know what? I'm going to tell about my experience as from my employer's perspective. I'm going to tell my perspective. And because everybody now is a reporter, right. everybody's a reporter. So you can, people can see for themselves. You, I can come out as a spokesperson, but you don't have the same traction anymore because when someone has a video, I'm going to lunch. There's nothing I can say. <laughs> so I don't know, you heard there was, a, uh, there was a city councilman who got arrested at a Walmart for shoplifting. And the first thing they did was came out and said, they're trying to take this man down. He couldn't have possibly have done this. And they said that Walmart allows people and a lot of retail stores now allow people to continue to steal until they get past a thousand dollars because now it's larceny. So they showed video of the person and five or six Walmarts shopping across town and stealing the merchandise. So you can't say they're trying to take them down and groups were starting to form talking about a protest. And guess what? You can't do that anymore because the video is there and that shuts people up. So when a person accuses somebody of something, people are looking for social proof. Look at a person's a website, look at their social media account look at the the employer what's the employer's track record people now have are able to make decisions and do that on their own about 60 percent on their own they have all the social proof they need before they make a purchase before they start decide to go to a doctor's office they can read so much about you so employers who are used to locking everything down telling their own narrative that's over. Everybody can find out everything about anybody. And you, as you see the Daily Mail, if you say you think we can't do it, don't challenge the Daily Mail. They'll follow you for two years and come out with video footage for two years about you. So like you said, you have to be real. It's all going to come out and you need to either deal with it and be proactive or you're gonna to have to hire people like me to help it be reactive. And that's gonna be on page two and three. It's not as effective on page, it's not, it's no longer on page one. It's not as effective. 
I love everything you're saying. And, and of course, like, you know, social media is there for us to be in the court of public opinion. And um, like you said, everybody can make a video. So it's really, you know, it's really up to the employers to, even as you mentioned, like the CEO, maybe they didn't know what was going on with the visa, you know, prepaid cards, Mm -hmm. but should they have? Yes, because they should have been doing check-ins and follow-ups. And, you know, seeing how their money is getting paid, because clearly they should know that, right? So all those things should be happening. Um, So it's interesting to see that, like, you know, even in this day and age, when we have all the social media, that they are not sort of getting ahead of that. And one of the things you might find interesting, one of my former coworkers, um, she has children that are younger than me, and -hmm. probably in the sort of Gen Z era. And they were going to this hotel and they had requested or reserved a suite because they were like, there was like eight or 10 of them that were going. So they needed like the king bed, they needed the pullouts, they needed all of that. And they got to the hotel and the hotel said, we, we didn't save that room for you. We gave it away. And they were like, so they're trying to put them in a two, in a two um, twin bed room. And they're like, we can't fit all of our sleeping in here. So they tweeted at the CEO of the hotel and told them what happened. The CEO responded within seconds and was like, I've had you upgraded to a penthouse suite. Please call, please go down and see the front desk. And they had like the best room in the hotel at the (laughs) same price because they tweeted at the CEO. And I was like, listen, people, like I always say, if there's a company, like I was having trouble with Home Depot, I was like, I'm tweeting at them. And they're like, that's right right out to us because if you put it on social media they know the ramifications of that it's called social customer service learn that term and say i am standing in store look it up store number 152 and i'm being told blah 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 you know or i've purchased something and there's nothing like user-generated content for people to say this is a bunch of crap Okay. Or they see someone else being mistreated. So, you know, if you're in your offices and someone is coming in and lambasting, and people have told me horrific stories that there's a, a lot of people that come in the work that are Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, they want people to come back in the work because what are they doing? Okay, they have, they're, they're out of commission. So there are people that, you know, if you can capture a person doing that and then letting that know, let them know and tweet that on that person's page to say, you know, we have the highest standard quality of so-and-so and the person's telling you're nothing, you're nothing, you know, I've seen the videos and you're like, whoa, okay. Um, what, what do you think we should do? And I'm thinking, um, I agree with HR and general counsel. That person probably needs to go because they're not in alignment with our core values. Let's just say that. And then that's what happens because you are a liability. And no, what people what people have to remember is that commerce moves on no matter what's happening, no matter what changes. You know, I don't care if it's AI, I don't care what's going on. The growth in revenue, it's always about making the dollar and if you're impacting them making a dollar are you offensive and you're offending entire groups of people and they look and see how many people support you know their product or service that one person is going to go they're always going to go you know for what's better for the betterment of the whole company and the it's the company is an entity so you know i think 
with leadership, I, I posted today and I talked a little bit about earlier, I posted and talked about that there's a problem when it comes to consulting firms. I did a whole series about where are the CMOs, the chief marketing officers within corporate America? Why don't they have diversity when they have like, you know, all these different populations of people that they're serving? So I did a post about um minority-owned consulting firms, and that there's 1,225 certified minority companies that specialize in thought leadership, business strategy, yet the same like 80 consulting firms get the money, and the top three get 98% of all the contracts globally, like in every sector, business, government, and also nonprofit organizations. How could that be? So I did another post to show, here's an example of some Black consulting firms. I'm going to do some women-owned consulting firms. Here's some consulting firms of Latino, so that people can't say, I didn't know, and I don't know how to contact them. The re and I said to you, the reason people don't know is because when you're looking for a service, it's always going to be the status quo. The same people that are either going to take out an ad, be in a directory, be seen, they're always front facing to the public and to the corporate buyer. Those are the people that they go for. And what I challenge people to do is go against the status quo, because if you keep having leadership, consultants, research firms, they're all homogenous. If they're all white leadership, how are you having diverse, diverse conversations, yet they're telling people that they lack cultural discussions, they lack diversity inclusion. It's the biggest challenge for a lot of corporations. It's on their docket. It's on their list. So how are you picking what conversations to have with various cultures, races, ethnicities, if you're only talking and receiving professional counsel and business consultancy from the same people, the, the MBB, the McKenzie's, the, the, the Baines, you know, the Boston Consulting, that's the MBB. They call them the top three. Now, if you're talking to the top three and all of these people are getting all this contract money, look at how it impacts the lives of one consulting firm has 385,000 employees globally, and they do business in every sector. Name a business that does business in every sector. That is just crazy. I don't know about you, but if I hire a plumber and he's also the electrician, he does math, he does marketing, he just, I need to see all those capability profiles. And if the people who are purchasing, they're looking at the same contracts over and over again with the same logos of the same companies, how are we going to move forward and be progressive towards change? How are we going to have inclusion if we don't have a diversity of thought, uh, you know, diversity of research? You're, it, it just makes no sense. And I just basically tell people that in order to advocate and be a good advocate for marginalized communities, you have to know that if you keep seeing the same names all the time, invite somebody new to the table, find out who else do we have, make a list and say, you know what, we haven't seen anyone Chinese do it. We haven't seen anybody start naming populations, you know, uh, where's the neurodiversity? Who specializes in neurodiversity and thought leadership? How is that getting across? Who's talking about it and speaking different languages? You know, what are we going to do for um, single moms with with children that are that, you know, that's their family. 
we have a melting pot of people in the United States and across the globe at this point. We're a global community and what impacts us now impacts everyone. So if you see the, the change in the paradigm of the demographics, you see the different paradigm shift in AI and you see the change of you know, the number, the age of people, we're aging as a community, we have to start making and advocate, advocating, motivating and educating people. We have to do that. So, so that the next generation sees that we want to be, we all need to be reflected. And if you're not all at the table, people need to create their own opportunities at this point to show, as you said, that you're calling BS on what's always been status quo. And if you really look around, what's happening is the people who are running corporate America are aging out, just like in Congress and everything else. So in the next five years, it will be a lot easier to have conversations like this where we see huge movement. Mm -hmm. And I think the only thing you can do now is ask people to require documentation. Everybody should have on their website, what are you doing for pay equity? What are you doing for diversity, equity, inclusion? What are you doing for sustainability? Those are things that are important to me. They're probably important to other people. So if you're not able to show me where you are, where you're trying to go, and what you're actually doing right now and what you plan on doing, you should be proud of that because people can actually help you. People could probably point you in the right direction. It's shared knowledge, shared expertise, shared information, and let's face it, shared wealth. When you don't share the wealth with other people, what you end up doing is you're going to create situations where you're going to have more poverty and poverty makes people aggressive and angering. And then we'll be back revisiting it, but having a completely different discussion. So I think as the shift is happening, leadership is starting to realize that they need to make changes. But if you keep talking to the same people, we all know we have to do something about it. Now, what's the next step to take? What are we really trying? Where do we need to do next? You need to talk to people uh, that you want to impact. So I can't talk to cabinet makers when I'm really trying to affect the plumber. <laughs> you know, there's no plumber at the table, but we're going to sit here and talk about plumbers. So just think, not even 20, 30 years ago, men were sitting at a table talking about women leadership, women in leadership, and whether or not women should be working, and which, what are we going to do about pregnant women, but there were no women at the table. How crazy does that sound? Now, here we are, 2023, having a conversation about inclusion and diversity and pay equity, and we haven't moved much further. And the reason being is because at the very top, when it comes to executive leadership, they're not servant leaders. Right. They're serving their stakeholders and themselves and the people that they know who know and look like them. Mm -hmm. And I can't even give you like enough of a round of applause for that whole last set of mm -hmm. comments. I mean, honestly, like it infuriates me that we are in the place we are. I mean, you know, I look around and I'm like, I am big on diversity in general, right? But I always mm -hmm. talk about diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity mm -hmm. of culture. As a, as a future leader, I'm like, I don't want a bunch of people who act like me, look like me, think like me. I want people who are in the total opposite of me because I want them to challenge me every day that I am at work. 
that is my goal. Right. I want to feel the most uncomfortable every day and not in an uncomfortable in an unsafe way, but uncomfortable because I want them to challenge me. I want them to say, what can we do differently? Here's how my, you know, my group of people see that, right? Whatever it is, because that's what my competitors are doing. That's what the people that buy my, my services and my products are going to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like the fact that we have to explain this to people is like, like baffling to me, you know, the fact that we are, we just had, you know, affirmative action in, in colleges. I mean, like uh, Roe versus Wade. I mean, all that stuff is just like super infuriating to me that we're, we're going back to a time when we are taking rights away from people, when we should be giving them to more people. But you understand there's a strategy behind that. The strategy behind it, do you really think with Roe versus Wade that the men in power that have made this decision truly care about marginalized communities of people having babies? No. What they care about is, let's talk about some facts. The fastest growing population of people uh, going to college and finishing college, African-American women. The fastest growing population of of people in leadership and corporate America, white women. Okay. So if I all of a sudden create a, a policy that states that if you get pregnant, you must have a baby, it will slow down this progression. Okay. And women who are marginalized and people of color, even though that's not who it's laser focused toward, they still benefit from that because that slows down their progression. That creates more poverty. That creates more, you know, you have to now work two jobs, not one job. It slows everything down. And the whole affirmative action thing, when I talked about the number of people during COVID that were promoted and put in the spotlight who are African-American male leaders, men of color across the board, Asian, Latino, it doesn't matter, that have been made and finally are in the C-suite, went up by 12%. They just named someone else. The number of women who are now in leadership positions, but if I roll back affirmative action, right? It gives tons of money to like HBCUs and other, uh, you know, education. It'll help them, but will it help within the job market? At the end of the day, it's the men who are feeling the loss of power. This is their last bastion to try to hold on power as long as they possibly can for the next three generations of their offspring, They've lost in terms of numbers, there are more people of color collectively in the world now. This demographic shift is, continues to change. So if I try to roll things back to 1945 and 1950, it will slow down the progression, but it doesn't stop the demographic numbers from changing. And as you said, each generation is calling BS because what we were sold was the, the American dream was the American nightmare. The American dream is go to school, get educated, meet a great woman or husband, get married, have a kid. And in between, you're buying cars, you're taking out college loans, you have a mortgage, and it becomes a nightmare. You are stuck in that. And you're going to have bills. And what you're not going to do, you're going to pray for your four and no more. As my Bible study teacher says, you're stuck in that loop. And a lot of people are ex excited that they get two weeks vacation. They get to go to Disneyland. They have their little plot of land. 
that is what's the term, the useful idiots. As long as you keep people in that circle and on that ramp, you're focused in on that. And it's great. It really is a great dream if it was all possible and doable and you could do it in a great way. But the reality is it's so difficult now to live. We live in a very fast paced world. People don't have time to take care of themselves. They can't afford to take care of themselves. And the reality is when we had COVID, it made everyone stop. And everything that you were purchasing and buying, you realize was BS. People save money. They open up savings accounts. They talk to each other. But the most important thing they did was people became what they call woke. All of a sudden, they start watching the news. They started watching the um of the impeachment of the president. They start watching press conferences. People were turning on to PBS. They were watching Congress. More people um, registered to vote. And for the first time, huge numbers of people registered to vote online. Tons of immigrants registered to vote, at least for, with not registered to vote, I'm sorry. They um, uh, went ahead and participated in the census. So they had an increase in the number of people that, that were on the books for the census. And they basically educated Americans that you want to get rid of these immigrants. Immigrants pay taxes. They're adding to the bottom line and they are holding down the United States, they're part of the fabric of that's what we were built on was immigrant immigration, immigration and slavery. Okay, that's what we were built on. So let's have an honest conversation that all of these uh, rollback people don't understand that what keeps people in power is money, military, right? And for me to change the laws. Every time, those are three things that keep people in power. When everything else is taken away, that's what people still have that are in power. Money, the military, and the ability to change the laws and the books. So every time people start getting it and moving up and elevating themselves, they want to change the rule. They want to change the law, right? They want to use money. They want to start a war. It's, it's a strategy. And Americans... And just globally, people are starting to wake up and realize that we have the power and we have, we're fortunate that we have a democracy to participate in, but other countries are starting to realize that collectively with everything that happened with George Floyd, that was a knee-jerk reaction to say, we've all felt down like that and how dare somebody do that and how unfair that was. And the next thing you know, all of a sudden we were pushing diversity, equity, inclusion. Diversity, equity, inclusion have been around. Let's talk about why it became a corporate thing. It become, becomes a corporate push because if they don't have diversity, equity, inclusion, the federal government will step in and there'll be compliance and there'll be more things like affirmative action. So they're trying to self-police. And then when the economy gets bad, the first people they lay off are people that are in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And who did they move up? White women. Okay, but the first, but this is the difference when they did it 20, 30, 40 years ago, and they had to like put women in the workplace, they had control. Those women were married and the men were on the same page. For the first time ever, look at the statistics the number of white women who are moving up in corporate America, women of color in other marginalized communities, and they're moving up, and for the first time, they're not married. They have no children. They are laser focused on what is going on in government, what's happening in nonprofit, 
what's happening in business and they're not swayed by the BS and they can't pull their strings. They can't say, well, if you don't go to Dallas next week, you know, we're going to pull your health care and you have a child in school. I don't have a child in school. I'll just find another job and I'll go work for your competitor. That's what that abortion bill is about. They're hoping, wishing, and praying, get these women pregnant so that they can kind of slow them down and take them out of you're in you're untouchable when you're not married you don't have any kids i can go to another firm tomorrow but if you have a family you're invested and in taking you have people that depend on you and therefore i can depend on you to do not only the right thing but i can depend on you to do something that i want you to do right now because i pay your salary so a lot of that if women support women in all phases of life, married, single, divorce, it doesn't matter. Women supporting women has become more of that movement. That's what we need more of. We're not slayed by all these different things that people talk about. And if you are a man that stays home with your child, you notice society doesn't give the men the big stigma anymore. All these socialized stigmas that separate us and hold us back are now falling away because we're realizing that the enemy was the people at the top who were giving us the lives that we want. We want certain lives. And people say, you know what? Stop begging for a place at the table and let's build our own. That's what I love about the millennials and Gen Z. They're like, let's build the table of our own. And they know if people continue to say that and do that, it's a problem, which is why they really don't like the fact that all these people are becoming entrepreneurs. Going back to what the country started out as, entrepreneurs, in charge of your own destiny and that corporate America is on fire, mm -hmm. you know? Well, and, you know, even with what you were saying, right, like with those older, you know, older boomers and, and Gen Xers that are going to start to retire who have those old school mindsets, I'm sitting there going like millennials and Gen Z, like rise up, here we go. Like, this is our time to change the landscape, to change the world, right? Like, because I think my generation of people and the younger ones, we're like, why are we not treating everybody equally? Why right. are we like, to us, it's like, like baffling about like, why do we even have to have this conversation? And like, I was talking to my 11 year old niece about when, when the whole, you know, situation with George Floyd happened and we were having conversations about racism and anti-racism and, you know, we were having all these open conversations and she was like, but why are we just not treating people equally? And I was like, from, from your mouth to God's ears, like what, like, you know what I mean? Like in the fact that a, a child does is like, why are we not just doing this? This is just natural. It's like, like, can you go and tell people the rest of the older population, <laughs> this simple concept, right? I mean, and so it was just interesting that like she at 11 could, could formulate a, a better answer than most older people. Well, look, look at how she was raised, though. When you talk to an 11-year-old child, they're living in an age where they've grown up with multicultural people from different ethnicities, different backgrounds. There are people in their class, they are very aware that, that we live in a global society. The same way they wake up and they look at their cell phone, they're born into technology as a part of their life. Multiculturalism and diversity is a part of their life. But older Americans are still holding on to what they saw, which was segregation, civil rights. Uh, you know what I mean? So 
depending on the age and what you've grown up around, it's very natural. It's not something that a concept that they need to learn. They were born doing it and using it. So I think the difference is, is that people who want to move forward, no matter what your background is, what are we going to do about it? Like to me is insane that you have still have a pay equity situation between men and women, just vote in Congress and all Fortune 500 companies says tomorrow, every woman will be paid exactly what a man is paid. End of story, let's move on. Next, what's the next problem? Okay, we don't have daycare, we don't have this. Okay, so we're gonna have daycare. We're gonna have parent uh, wellness resources for people that need help. Boom, next problem. What's, what's the next thing? Why, you know what I mean? Like Oprah, next caller. It's very simple, just make it happen. But they're like, let's go through this process because the longer the process takes, another generation falls behind, another generation falls behind. And if you notice, and people, when they immigrants come to America, if they come from a country where they have 10 kids, 12 kids, whatever it is, when they come to America, they slow that down to one or two because they come here and you'll talk to them and they'll say, I've never been in a grocery store that had 57 aisles. I've never seen a person live in a four bedroom house and they have a gift wrapping room. I've never never been somewhere where people have four cars in front of a driveway. They see how Americans live a very lush life, but also they're shocked at the level of poverty. So that the, the dichotomy, the level of dichotomy that people realize once they get here, they see the extremism, right? And they realize that a lot of it is smoke and mirrors in Hollywood. And I think the whole advent of what happened with our last presidency, it unveiled how we were very Hollywood, but behind the scenes, we're like as messed up as any other country, but we have a democracy and people do vote and there is some say, and because of what we were built on, Okay, we're bringing our history. There's good history to bring to show that democracy can work when it's done properly and you don't involve corruption. So there is things from the past that you don't want to burn. I don't want people to ever forget the Holocaust or ever forget slavery, that those are things as lessons to never go back to. And I always use for me, which was really influential for me was Star Trek. Every day you saw Star Trek, it was multicultural. People had a level of respect. Everybody had a specialty. They all had to work with the team, you know, within a team. And, you know, and guess what? They worked remotely. They had Zoom. (laughs) Okay. And, you know, it was a hybrid work situation. I love, and the fashion. Okay. They had the greatest boots and mini skirts and everything. So it was, to me, it was, it was something that people should aspire to. And I, it's sad that they had that show in the 60s. And that's still something that we aspire to, just like the Flintstones or the Jetsons, I should say. When the Jetsons came out, you were thinking, we're going to be flying in cars and you know we're going to be doing all these different things. We're still not doing it yet. We're getting there. But Star Trek, you would think that's something that we should be able to make happen that we shouldn't be hoping, wishing, and praying when we have laws that can make it go into place and change it right now, you know? So that's the hope. That's the hope. That's the dream. And if you impart that and you have less direct reports so that leadership can see, see, hear, feel, so that they do something about it. That's what's so instrumental is that if you're not getting your message to your CEO, then somebody needs to tweet about it because there's going to be a video. 
user-generated content is the most powerful content there is. People don't want to see ads. People don't want to see the reviews and the testimonials. They think all that can be faked. But when someone turns on and sees user-generated content, this is what it really looks like when it arrives. The What the box looks like, the packaging looks like, the, the, the comment from a real person that's not scripted, there's no better endorsement than a third-party endorsement. And that's what leaders should be looking for that user-generated unfiltered truth and that truth will set them free and realize this now is considered to be mission critical and we need to address it so that's that's my hope yeah. and dream you know that's great um so before we close out there's two other things i want to do i want to um first ask you how do people get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you in some way Sure. Um, on social media platforms, I'm at Felicia Ward Marketing on all platforms. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, um, Facebook. And if they want to email me, info at FeliciaWardMarketing.com and the same name for my website. So I'd love to, you know, to, to talk to people, like I said, that are serious about servant and executive leadership and having them amplify their authority in a way that's going to affect people and make, you know, for change. Absolutely. One more thing before we go. This is something I ask every guest on the show. Um, my favorite poet of all time is Maya Angelou. May she, may she rest in peace forever. Um, but she had this great quote that was, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Can you share a time for me uh, with me that that was true for you? I think truth for me was I had fabulous mentors and to talk to a real person, not someone I just, just aspired to, but I actually had worked with was I had a great mentor. Her name was Pat Sokoloff and uh, she worked the chemical manufacturers association and I was an intern there and I was downstairs doing intern things, copying, photographing with everybody else. And she came down and said, who wrote this speech? And like, it was me. She said, I want you to come with me. And basically, you know, told me that I was a great speechwriter and that I should start doing all these things. Long story short, she told me something that I will never forget. And that's the fact that she said, men always go down to the copier and save another man from what they deem to be women's work. And I went, wow. She said, look at the people that you came in with. It was like 12 interns. Within two days, those interns, male interns were in the offices of other men. And she said, always be the woman or the person to go down and get someone from a marginalized community and save them from the copier. In other words, bring them up and find out what their hopes and dreams are and try to help facilitate that. And be the person to save somebody from staying in a place, standing still. And I, I, I said, I will always pay that back and always tell people about that, that you don't want to be the work wife. You don't want to be the person that's making the coffee. If that's not what you want to do, what is it that you do want to do? And I think we're not asking people and having conversations about what people's hopes and dreams, what's been imparted on your heart, whatever that is, it's been given to you. It's God given if whatever it is that you believe. And that's probably how you're going to help other people. So if I help you fulfill your dream, then you're going to help fulfill a lot of other people's dreams. And I think that's really what's why we're here. And once you start doing that and look to serve other people, whatever you're doing, 
I don't care if it's the exact same thing. It's not competitive to me because I'm me and you're you. So I think if people stop looking at it as a doggy dog world and just help people facilitate what they really truly want to go after, it would be it would make so many people happy and it would help so many people. And that's truth. That's truth for me. And I think it's truth for most people. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Felicia, for being here. Um, and as I end every episode, lead with empathy, act with kindness. Have a great day, oh, y'all. Love that. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to All People Podcast. If you enjoyed our show, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave a five-star review. The work doesn't end here. If you want to keep the conversation going, find me on LinkedIn or Facebook or visit my website, apeoplepartnerllc.com. Lead with empathy and act with kindness. Have a great day.